Would you please turn with me to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. Last week our service was a bit abbreviated because of the snowstorm. Uh, however, the Ross family and, uh, and, and myself, we met. We were able to do a live cast and uh, to preach and, and to do something of a, a relatively shortened uh, but, but realistic worship service. Many participated online. It was a blessing. Perhaps it was foolish on our part to come out in the snow like that, but nonetheless we did it. Uh, started to go up the street to try to get Laura and bring her here, get some piano involved, but uh, the driving was, was pretty intense and I turned around. Um, but uh, thank you all for, for supporting your church and being part of the congregation last week. Uh, it was uh, even online. Uh, it was a, a blessing, I guess, uh, though some of us may be quite frustrated by uh, online church. Um, thankfully, we're all here today. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. Uh, James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. That's not a typo in the bulletin. It's just simply my my own direction after having sent uh, the information to John. Uh, John John is completely innocent. Uh, this is James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. I remind you, this is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would grant wisdom and insight for Jesus' sake, that he might be glorified, and we, your people, might be edified and prompted, pressed, nudged forward in the Christian life. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I thought to shorten this passage and to deal with verses 1 through 5 initially, but but then I realized that if I did that, then I would shorten, I would, I would, I would cheat you, as it were. You would go home with a, a sense of conviction over a problem in the church, but without the recourse to healing and to hope. And so verses 1 through 5 are largely an identification of the problem that is in James's mind. It's worldliness. It's worldliness in the church. This is of grave concern to the Apostle James. And he writes to the church, those who are of the dispersion, the 12 tribes of Israel, as it were, in other words, the church in its entirety, but predominantly to Jewish Christians, but to believers in the general sense. And he's concerned over that particular subject, worldliness in the church. But then in verses 6 through 10, he tells us how to deal with that worldliness, how to, how to break free from worldliness within the believing community of the church. And it's an appropriate context. James has been talking about selfish ambition. He's talked about jealousy, disorder, vile things in the previous section, prior section to this. So now in verse 4, he takes up that same subject by telling us about Wars and fighting and dissension and passions. Not passions in the sense that, oh, I passionately love this other person, but passions as it relates to the height and depth of human response, emotional reactions, overreactions, passions, desires, 
passions and desires relating to sinful pursuits, things that are not to be embraced, coveting friendship with the world. All of those subjects are before us. Worldliness in the church is so prevalent, especially in our generation. You question whether or not worldliness is in the church is in fact a problem. Maybe you Maybe you're not really aware of what's going on in many other churches. Pastors believe that the best way they can serve the body of Christ is to put on display their Gucci, uh, their, their, their gold, their rings on their fingers, and to talk about all the things that they possess. I've listened to it from all sorts of churches, churches down in, in the Bronx in New York, to, to Jesse Duplantis describing his airplane and, and his properties that he owns, it's bizarre. It, somehow this is the display. To be worldly is, in the church today, in the modern church today, to be worldly is a display of the goodness of God. Well, James will contradict that entirely. Worldliness is in the church in the form of the various dissensions and, and, and the ways in which the church divides over peripheral issues, not issues relating to theological precision, which is vital. But so many believers leave the church over simple dislike of certain aspects. I've heard people leave the church over paint color in the sanctuary. It's worldly. It's deeply worldly. There's worldliness in the church in the form that somehow the church has to put on display a uh, some kind of a worship service on the Lord's Day that, that meets the standards of the world. In other words, meets up on the level with professionalism that meets uh, the shows and entertainment of Las, of Las Vegas. Worldliness has entered the church, and the problem is so much of the, world, uh, so much of the church has simply not identified that as a reality. There is worldliness in the ways in which pastors very eloquently offer messages rather than preaching and proclaiming the whole counsel of Christ. There is worldliness everywhere in the church today, especially in churches where the word becomes a peripheral matter and the entertainment and the rest of the service and the exaltation of pastors and their images as international figures, becomes more prevalent. Well, James is speaking to us about these things, and he, he, he's concerned for worldliness in the church. He's concerned that the distortions within the com community of God's people and strife which results from earthly wisdom and its use and practices, which we learned about last week, worldly wisdom is not pure and peaceable and gentle and reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. That's heavenly wisdom, the kind of wisdom we should be seeking from the Lord. But rather, worldly wisdom is that which comes from above, earthly, natural, and demonic. And if that kind of wisdom makes its way insidiously into the church, there will be divisions, envy, dissension. And is that where we are in the church today? Well, he asks two diagnostic questions to begin with. He, he has two very good pastoral diagnostic questions. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? That's a good question. What is causing quarrels and conflicts between brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ in the church? Second diagnostic question, isn't the same source your pleasures that wage war in your members? In other words, James is come to, has come to the conclusion that worldliness has entered into the congregation, into the church, and he's pointing out to them in rhetorical sorts of questions what really, are, what really is the source of, of quarrels and conflicts. Well, isn't it the same spirit of dissension and the pursuit of pleasure and your own selfish intents that wage war in your members. In other words, if there's conflict in the church, it's because there's an inner conflict in, in your own soul between yourself and your pursuit of God and your embrace of worldliness. If there's conflict in the church over lesser matters, not of theological significance, not of uh, salvific significance, not of significance relating to eternal things, but rather of peripheral matters, then 
The truth is that worldliness and the world and its pursuit and worldly wisdom of an earthly demonic variety has found its way into the church. Where does strife and disorder begin? Where does it come about? How does it come to be in the church? Well, James's remedy for us is the same as Job. Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. Maybe you're involved in some form of conflict in, in a church setting or in the church, and you're concerned about that conflict. Well, I can tell you right now, James, according to James, what's behind it is earthly, natural, demonic forces. Earthly, natural, demonic wisdom. And not the wisdom of God. Because the wisdom of God is peaceable, gentle, reasonable. Well, James divides our texts in, 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 into three points. The first of which is simply to identify hostility against mankind. To identify hostility against mankind. He'll secondly identify hostility against God. And then he'll provide a way of healing well, James tells us right off the bat that our enmity against each other, our hostility, what does that word enmity mean? Hostility, uh, dissension. It's quarrels and conflicts. Our enmity against each other is, and our hostility is, and against God, he's going to apply some clear directions for the clearing up of both of our problems which we've discussed, are, are the nature of which is fundamentally that we've, in, we've embraced the world. We've embraced the world in, in, in the ways in which we dress and speak and think. If someone were to look at any of us sometimes at, at various times in our lives, or perhaps maybe this is more prevalent amongst some of us than others, but, but if the world looks at us, would they see someone just like themselves? Or would they look and see someone that's strikingly different? who has a very different priority of living. James breaks down our enmity against our fellow brothers and sisters. He sees the outward symbol of really bad relationships amongst believers, and he says this is the thing that's making prayer, this is the thing that's making your commitment to God, life lived within the community, uh, your, your peace within the church, so very difficult to obtain. God gives in response to our prayers, but the truth is that he says, and James, James, James is diagnosing this problem of worldliness in the church, the truth is the way in which we deal with one another and the way in which we have conflict with God leads to a prayerlessness and or prayers that are not answered and a selfishness in our approach to, prayer, to the prayer life that we, we do in fact have. James is using very, very strong language in this passage. It's a frighteningly strong way in which he says, in our relationships with other Christians, we're at war with one another. That's the language that he uses. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts? It's not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder you're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. This is severe pastoral language. This is kind of like a pastoral moment when you, you meet with someone who, who is a ruling elder or a pastor and you, you say, look, I'm, I'm having this issue in my life. I, I've, I've had this this." Horrible conflict with another Christian. And these are the issues. Let me state them very clearly. And you explain the situation. And then the, you say, well, what do you think? What do you think religious spiritual leaders? What Help me to know why this conflict has developed. Help me to know and understand where this conflict has come from. This war that seems to have developed between us. And, and that pastor or that ruling elder says, Quite frighteningly, the issue is your own selfishness. You're in conflict with your brother and sister in Christ because you're selfish about yourself. 
That's what James is telling us this morning. He sees these outward bad relationships, and he's saying to Christians who are capable of embracing the world and bringing the world into the church and and who have a certain measure of worldly territory even within ourselves, in our own soul and heart. It's not all out there. Some of it's right in here. And he's saying, look, it's, it's bearing fruit in your relationships with your fellow believers. And maybe this, just, just to pull this aside very quickly, maybe some of us have experienced a loss of relationship with people that we have loved. Let me ask fundamentally the question that James is asking of us. Why is there that conflict? Why is there a dissension and a division between you and this other person? Why? Perhaps, and James is asking that question, isn't the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? Isn't, isn't, isn't the possibility, is it the possibility that you've experienced this division with a brother or sister in Christ because you have become worldly in your own thinking? You're, you're judging the relationship by worldly standards rather than carrying on the ethic of the New Testament and the character of Christ who is at peace determinedly with others, who desires peace, works for peace, reconciling continually, forgiving 70 times 7, always expressing, always holding mercy out, who sympathizes with us to such an extent that he experiences and knows our frailty as a human being. Oh, if we would only experience and desire to know the intricacies of the burdens that each of us carries. We listen, we listen to others share their burdens, and then we don't, we don't, we fail to express so often sympathy, empathy, an identification in and with other people in the troubles they face. We show so little emotional response, so little emotional apprehension of what they're suffering with. We do not enter into the tears and the joys of our brothers and sisters in Christ when we are commanded nonetheless by God, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. And James is going to diagnose that problem for us. The reality is we are selfish people. We are selfish people. And in our expression and working out of that selfishness in our relationships, we do it all in a worldly way. We have things that we need to deal with in our own self, in our own heart. I'll suggest to you that probably the issue why you're in a division against another brother and sister in Christ, the issue is probably you. It's probably your heart. Because divisions that we have with our brothers and sisters in Christ are a matter of the heart. A matter of our own embrace of selfishness or of the world. James sees it that way in frighteningly strong language. Now, James says it's actual war. Now, he's not referring to actual killings, and, but he's metaphorically speaking about strife between believers. I don't want to take away from the force of his word the intended shock of what he's saying. And what he's saying is, if, if, you're, if, you've, if you've divided yourself against another Christian person and you're in conflict with them within the body of Christ, you've in fact declared war. There's a man online uh, that Arnold, my dear friend, and I you know, follow sometimes. I don't do Facebook all that much, but, but there's some of it. And I don't want to say his name, but... <clears throat> I think this man says some good things, and he's unafraid to call a spade a spade. He speaks out about things. However, he has a spirit of division that continues to infect his social media posts to such an extent that he forgets grace, and he forgets that he himself is a sinner too. And that concerns me. I love this brother in the Lord. I, I love a lot of what he says, but, he, but he's graceless 
And somehow he lists himself up as a judge against other people. God has not called him to that. To an extent, all of us participate in that same similar spirit of judgment against others. And we must not. James is looking at church relationships through the eyes of God. And he's going to offer us a corrective in a t- later on for how we can deal with this spirit of enmity and of division and warfare. That's what James says it is. It's warfare. Maybe some of us feel like we're, we're engaged in a constant battlefield of, of resurgent hostilities in our own home where we're just waiting for a touchstone to be touched, something to be set afire, and there's a blaze, and it erupts, and there's dissension, and there's anger and hatred. I'll be honest with you, dear friends. I have six children, and I have a wife. With eight people in the same house, there's going to be conflict, isn't there? It's inevitable. And sometimes there's selfishness, and, and sometimes that selfishness is within my own heart. It's not just them, it's me. I love that when we have conflict, we do talk about things. We sit down and we talk fully about them. And God gives grace and wisdom to my wife and to me and helps us each. And frankly, a spirit of generosity and of grace and of mercy and of conviction to my children such that I can say that there's harmony in our home. I'm not saying it's without conflict. There's conflict. There always is. But there's harmony because we love the Lord and because we're humbled by the Holy Spirit and the grace of God and and, and the Holy Spirit works repentance in the hearts of our children and in my heart and that of my wife and I tell you that that when there is warfare and conflict within the family and there's no reconciliation and there's no grace and there's no sue for suing for peace, there's a lack of gentleness and reasonableness and the kind of wisdom that comes from above and purity, well, you're going to feel like you're in the midst of a continual conflict that never seems to come to an end. Be careful that you're not an antagonist on that field. Be careful that the warfare that, that, that you feel yourself caught up in is not something that you are a willing participant and initiator in doing. James is clarifying for us that the wars that we are involved in and our conflicts and our interrelational conflicts It stems from our lust because we have a desire for things and we don't get everything that we want. (laughs) Don't we see that in our smallest children? Watch what happens when they don't get what they want. Well, that same kind of an attitude can be refined but present in an adult human being too. When we don't get what we want, what, what are we filled with? Well, bitterness a sense of selfishness, a sense of entitlement. I have a right to that. Now I'm angry and I'm bitter that they got it and I didn't. The problem with adults is now we have the means to enter into conflict, whereas a small child is just going to erupt but really can't do very much. But human beings, we lust and we don't have, and so we commit murder. Now, Jesus, when he was speaking about murder... He clarified that murder is not simply the act of shoving something else that will end a life into another human being or shooting someone with a projectile. Jesus said hatred in our own heart is a transgression of that commandment. To look at a brother in the Lord and to hate them is to be guilty of committing murder. And so James is telling us, look, you're murdering one another because... What's he have in view? There's a hatred that's present in our hearts towards one another. That hatred can take many different forms. It can take a visible, gut-wrenching, face-distorting hatred with an activity that leads to almost choking the windpipe of someone else. Okay, well, or some other form of actual killing. But hatred can take a different form, too. We, We just simply 
are ambivalent about the needs of another human being in the body of Christ, and we, we don't concern ourselves at all with their concerns. That's a form of hatred, is it not? Or to speak badly about that person and, and tearing them down with another individual in the church who, who is sympathetic to our cause and our lusts. You ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. So that you may spend it on your pleasures. You're envious. You can't obtain. So you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask. Well, this is all language that points us to the truth that when we don't get something that we want and our, our perceived needs are not met, there's all hell to pay. James doesn't leave us guessing, and he tells us that this is due to a condition which exists within us as Christian individuals. It's, it's like what Romans 7, in Paul's description of the, the inner conflict within a believer. The good that I want to do, I don't do. And the evil that I don't want to do, I do. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Are we convinced that in our heart of hearts, that we are in a condition of absolute abject wickedness without Christ? That the person without Christ is absolutely lost, absolutely and totally, utterly, completely, pervasively depraved. But as a Christian, are we also still remainingly convinced that our sins, oh, our sins, our sins would consume us, our sins are overwhelming, our sins are immense, that our debt is Incredible that our sins proliferate, that we are filled with sins so that we could say as the Apostle Paul did, I, I am the chief of sinners. I sin more than any other person. I'm convinced of that. Are you? The war that is within us as we sin in our own soul against God by our embrace of worldliness our desires for ourselves, our sin, uh, sinful selfishness, it leads us to continue against that same road, to continue walking on that same road and, and to begin to enter into conflict with each other. Within each of us, our pleasures, our desires, our strong longings are allied to our sinful nature. And so our sinful self sets our heart on satisfaction at any cost and we won't allow anything to stand in, in, in our way. I don't know if you've ever seen this show, but I, I don't, I've never watched a whole show, but I've seen clips of it. But, but there's a show that's online where people walk into a pawn store, a pawn shop, and, and they, they offer their stuff. Well, there's people that bring stuff in that's fake, that's not real, that, that they're not, never going to get the money for. They overvalued it so significantly. And they enter in so sweetly, they think that they're going to win this, this person on the other side of the counter over with their things. And so they present this thing, and, and the person on the other side of the counter sometimes will say, I'm sorry, but this th item is completely fake. Watch the face fall in the person who brought in the item. And then watch the enmity and the, and the anger begin to develop. They're ready to jump over that counter. There are big Huge men in that pawn store preventing people from doing that because people do that. There is grave disappointment to be told that you can't get what you want. And what you just brought in isn't worth anything. People are funny. Get out in a car and see if there's some conflict on the road and see what people will do. Sometimes people will follow you. They will jump out. They will walk out, jump out with a bat in their hands. I've had that happen. When our, when our sensitivities, when our, when our self-preservation kicks in, when what I want does not get met, watch out. That's, that's the natural human disposition. And James has that in, in view here, and he says that's entering into the church. Maybe some of us, to, the language seems exaggerated, and, 
and, and, and somewhat extravagant in our ears, wars and fighting and waging war. Well, I'm not waging war against anyone. It sounds too strong. We're inclined to think that our occasional disagreements and squabbles don't really merit such strong language, but if we think differently, then we're showing that our minds and hearts haven't really been brought into the captivity and into obedience to Jesus Christ. When our Lord Jesus Christ spoke on the sixth commandment, as I've previously shared, he explored the depth of the offense. He spoke of anger, of derogatory comments, dismissive remarks, and name-calling. And he says all those things break and transcend that sixth commandment. Name-calling, derogatory comments, dismissive remarks, and anger. He wasn't speaking about great prolonged embattlement against another believer or unjustified anger or something bigger than that. No, he was talking about simply derogatory comments, anger, dismissive remarks, and name-calling. Wars, battle, dissension, division, that's what it is. Jesus said, if you have something against your brother or your sister, set aside your sacrifice. What is that something? can be anything. It can be anything. Those moments of anger, derogatory comments, dismissive remarks, and name-calling can be anything. It can be just the slightest negative thought about another fellow Christian. Something against your brother or sister in the Lord. Was Jesus exaggerating when he spoke about that and called it murder? Was John extravagant when he said that anyone who fails to love his brother is like Cain who killed Abel? I think the problem is that we diminish the importance of right relationships. Not the, it's not the scriptures or James that's over-exaggerating. We tolerate too quickly those who are very difficult to get along with, who are who are divisive in nature, who often walk in conflict with other believers. And sometimes perhaps we even slyly gossip about those who have, we have fallen out in relationship with. Well, we also have hostility against God. <clears throat> James moves on from the relationships with one another to our relationship with God and here again, all isn't well. He reminds us that prayer could be a solution, but in our practice of prayer, we're asking for the wrong things, and God is not granting what we're asking for because we're being selfish. We're either taking what God gives us in response to our prayers for the gratification of our passions, wonder of wonders. God gives you what you've asked for, and, and you use it, I use it for the sake of gratifying my sinful flesh rather than glorifying God with what he has given to me. We can do that, the misuse of funds. We can do that by refusing to use our gifts in service to the body of Christ. We do that in the way in which we withhold love from one another. I think everyone gets this. I was out yesterday. I, I happened to see an NFL broadcast, and I just saw one helmet really quick, and it said, be the love or show the love. Even an NFL 400-pound lineman gets this. We are obligated to show love to one another. And if we refuse to show that love, then yes, we're in, we're in a position of conflict and of warfare against the body of Christ. Maybe someone looked at us funny this morning. Maybe someone said something that we found distasteful or... We didn't like how they said it. Or maybe some, someone said something and it was it was just a moment. Last week, I was running around, I was clearing the snow, somebody was calling me and texting me and then there were other issues with getting here and getting into the congregation and getting everything set up and to be quite frank, I was in a bad mood. I'm sure many of you, if you've known me long enough, you've seen me in a bad mood. I do get on, into a bad mood on occasion. And I walked in, and there was this young family there that were helping me. And I had to admit very quickly, I, I'm in a bad mood. I'm sorry. And, and to ask forgiveness. 
And, and then uh, to say, I had no reason nor right to be in a bad mood. I was just hurried, stressed. You know how that is. You've got a million things to do. You get stressed. You get a little frustrated, a little impatient. Thankfully, this dear brother and sister did not get offended by me. I'm grateful for that. They could have. But love overtook any offense that might have been. We are guilty of what James is saying, many of us. I, I, chief my, uh, of all of you, amongst, uh, amongst all of you, is myself. We talk of another person who looked at us funny. We gossip, we fight, we wage war against one another. We are guilty of what James is saying. We know it. We're ready to pounce at the slightest provocation. But, but the problem is we take that same attitude to, into our relationship with God. And we are selfish with God. And when he pours out his grace on us, we use what he gives us for the satisfaction of our own selves. When God did not intend that, he gave us what he gave us and the gifts that he gives us for the sake of glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ, ministering to one another's needs, serving the larger body of Christ. We are either taking what God gives us in response to our prayers for the gratification of our passions We're simply not receiving any grace through prayer because we're not fit to receive it. We're asking for the wrong thing. And we're asking selfishly. Let me just say this. James is telling us that God does not permit our undisciplined asking. God will not permit our undisciplined asking. We can ask of him, but he will not grant us anything that contradicts his will or that, that contradicts his good purposes for us. Amen. And God will ultimately not give us, it's not that God's not answering prayer, he's not going to give us what we sinfully ask for, and that violates God's commandments. God will not permit our undisciplined asking. James charges us this morning that the one thing our hearts are solidly loyal to is our own personal satisfaction. Maybe that's the one thing that we could come to is some conviction this morning that we are deeply selfish. And we are. It is in our sinful nature. Even if we're very generous with our resources, there is still a spirit of selfishness about ourselves, perhaps in the way in which we interact with one another. Maybe you're struggling with that thought this morning. Well, let me ask you to examine your motives in the following week. Why do you do what you do? Why do you interact with the people that you do? And why do you not interact with the others that you don't? Let me ask you about your behavior in the body of Christ, in the church, or at Bible study, or in teaching opportunities, or at Sunday lunch. Why do you sit with the people that you do? Is there a spirit of selfishness concerning your failure to interact with others? Or the reason why you, you sit with them as opposed to them is selfishness in all of us. James has already asked us and demanded that our hearts be solidly loyal to the Lord from whom we ask for wisdom. And the problem is that our hearts are often divided. James does not say that God doesn't hear our prayers, only that we don't receive that which we ask for. He always hears our prayers. There's no such thing as unheard prayer or unanswered prayer. Well, unheard prayer, but there are times when God will not give us what we've asked for. Sometimes the answer from God must be no or not yet. Well, that contradicts my will for you. That will not lead to your best. Our prayers are often defiled by our insistently self-centered hearts so that we must either cleanse our hearts or stop our prayers and start asking for different things and more so submit to the Lord and begin to be reformed in our prayer life. Well, it's this cleansing of our heart that's the goal to which James is leading us this morning. He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us is there hostility with God over what he has given you or over the lot, of, uh, in, uh, the lot of your life in which you find yourself this morning? Maybe you're complaining against your circumstances. You don't want your life to be the way it is. And you've asked the Lord a thousand times for the right things, and he still has not given it to you. 
The Lord is faithful. Submit to his will. Humbly ask of the Lord. And accept that the Lord may say to you, not yet. Not yet. God sometimes has to frighten us to face the reality of our passions, our self-centered feelings, and help us to see that love to God and our brothers and the sisters and our sisters in the Lord is of paramount importance. One writer has said, "The greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It's not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but our endless nibbling at the table of the world." not the x-rated video but the prime time dribble of triviality we drink in every night for all the ill that satan can do when god describes what keeps us from the banquet table of his love it's a piece of land a yoke of oxen or a wife the greatest adversary of love to god is not his enemies but his gifts the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil but the simple pleasures of earth you know, he's right. Jesus, when he's speaking about the kingdom of God and calling forth and calling people to, to the banquet, there's so many excuses. I just bought a field. I need to go see it. I'm harvesting. I have a new wife. I need to be with her. James doesn't set out a list of our potentially forbidden passions or illicit pleasures. What he has in mind is simply anything that may take away from our place or our love for God or replace it. He jealously, he jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell within us. Anything that keeps us from loving God, it can be anything. I think John Blanchard is right when he said, it's one of the most astonishing evidences of the sovereignty of God that in spite of the fact that man has turned his back on his maker, the fact of the matter is that we cannot cast off self cannot cast off restraint, run riot, please ourselves, and be completely hedonistic without a price having to be paid. And that price is that God's people become worldly. And there's isolation from God and isolation and warfare between ourselves and our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. The human price is the destruction of relationships. The spiritual price is a breach of our relationship with God. How can we correct this? We can't live an intimate relationship with him when we have set our hearts towards the world. We cannot live in right, reconciled, happy relationship with God when our hearts are set on the world. Well, there's a greatly encouraging word here as we come to the third and last and final point of our sermon this morning. Verse 6, he gives a greater grace. There was a church here in Springfield many years ago. It was a great movement. And it also had uh, members up in the Berkshires too. There were good parts of it and negative parts as well. They called themselves Greater Grace. That church is now no longer, but there are many believers who are still around who adhere to the same principle. It is based upon this idea here. But he gives greater grace in verse 6. That idea, that, that, that thought, is, should be a comforting thought to all of us. God, who James has recently identified back in chapter 3, who gives generously to those who ask, and he gives without reproach, is the God who gives greater grace. <clears throat> Maybe you're thinking, well, I received grace when I was converted and I became a believer. I don't think that we can be given any more grace than that. Well, James is saying, yes, yes, you can be. Yes, God is deeply generous, and he intends, if you hunger for it, and you're pursuing him, and you repent of your sin, he gives greater grace. More than that, even when we haven't repented, we're not yet aware of the fullness of sin, he's giving greater grace to us without our even being aware of it. And he'll bring us into a position of repentance and of 
deep sorrow over our sin. He always has more grace at hand for us to receive. He never falters in respect to our needs. Whatever we may have forfeit when we put ourselves first and we become so selfish and we let the world enter into our calculations and our life in the church, he has yet more to give. Whatever we may forfeit when we ask the Lord for things that contradict his will and then we spend what he gives on our pleasures, we can't forfeit our salvation. There's always more grace. No matter what we do, he's ready to give more grace to to those who repent of their sins and seek his face. His resources are never at an end. His patience is never exhausted. His initiative never stops. His generosity knows no limit. He gives greater grace. But grace from God has a correlative in, in man. James, having pointed to God's sufficiency, points out now our responsibility. There are no less than ten commandments in verses 7 through 10 for us to obey. James doesn't see the indwelling of the Holy Spirit as a means of instant, painless, and effortless sanctification. God's limitless supply of grace doesn't sweep us along effortlessly upon the path of holiness. This good life that we spoke about last week is something to be pursued, but it involves abstaining from sin. It involves actively being allegiant to Christ. Christians must have no doubt in our minds just whose side we're on, that when the rubber meets the road, at the end of the day, I want to serve Jesus Christ. The world can be damned, I want Christ. The world can do whatever it wants. I want worldliness taken out of me. I want more of Christ in me. And we should be dissatisfied, holily dissatisfied, when we see the world taking over various attitudes and and perspectives in our own thinking. We should ask the Lord, Lord, take this away from me. Remove what is idolatrous in me. Remove what is selfish in me. And teach me, teach me your way. And lead me in the blessed life. You and I have to be absolutely certain that we we belong to God. We belong to God. We are his. And our submission has to be passive, but certainly resisting Satan isn't very passive at all. And so we are to do a number of different things. Submit to God. Resist the devil. He'll flee from us. Draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. Be miserable, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. If we do all of that, remembering that he gives greater grace comes first. He gives greater grace. We respond in these various ways, and he will exalt you and bless you. James is describing a a humble walk with God by commanding a deliberately cultivated fellowship. Draw near to God. Draw near to God. Many of us, we cast about and we say, I need to discover God's hidden purposes for me. I want a relationship with God. I find God so distant. I'm struggling with intimacy. I'm struggling with knowing how to approach God. Well, the simple answer, just, just, just draw near to God. Draw near to him in whatever way he has prescribed in his word. Read the scriptures. Draw near in prayer. Seek the Lord in your thought life, in your prayer life. Talk constantly with God. But draw near to him. No matter what you do, draw near to God and he will exalt you. Uh, Do you need another invitation? Do we need something far more significant than this? Do we need a bigger promise? If we draw near to God, He, God, who has created the world and all that is in it, God who sent forth His beloved Son, that whosoever should believe in Him would have everlasting life, do we need something more than Him? To know Him, to live with Him, to walk in relationship with Him, to know and experience His love for us. Do we need a greater invitation than this? A greater kick in the pants to do it and to be more faithful to do it? Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That's all I need to hear. And yet drawing near to God is so so hard sometimes, isn't it? 
We are caught up in our worldliness. We are caught up in our selfish pursuits. We can begin the day without any thought of God. We can neglect prayer, neglect reading of Scripture. And the next thing we know, we are more worldly than we were the week before. The world has encroached all that is natural and demonic and has influenced us more than thoughts of God. James tells us that we need, he's using the language of, as he says, weep and don't weep and mourn. Cast off your joy. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, your joy to gloom. He's talking about repentance. People, Christian people who have fallen under the, under the conviction that, yes, I have lived a selfish life. I've pursued my own self-pursuits, all the things that satisfy my body. My passions and my lusts take preeminent position in my life, and God comes oftentimes second. Let your laughter be turned to mourning. Humble yourselves before your God. Draw near to him, and he will draw near to you. We are in need, many of us, of cleaning up our lives, our hearts, our hands. But there is a greater grace with God, and he equips us to do it. And he is the one who has called us to it. And he will enable us to do it if we, are, if we faithfully seek him. We need to hate our sin and truly feel sorry for it, to admit, to confess that we have become worldly in so many ways and that selfishness has become a latent problem that we need to deal with. And we may cry out to God and ask him, Lord, come and fill the spaces of my life that the world has taken over. Fill them with Christ. Fill them with the Holy Spirit. Fill them with your love. Come, O God, and he will exalt you. We need to be in a position of perpetual supplication for grace to obey. And for those who are simply here this morning, you're you're caught up in a season in your life in which you just you've been going faithfully through the motions. You've faithfully done what God's word commands. And yet you've found that there's a a dryness in your life, a dryness in your heart, a lack of joy. The same promise is for you. But he gives a greater grace. And if, if you're faithful in due season, God will visit you with warmth and blessing. And he will draw near to you and exalt you in due time. May God convict and help us this morning. Let's pray.